0: And so, Lord Jesus, um, we want to trust you. Scripture says that the substance belongs to you. And I've wondered what that means, and I think maybe it's the substance of everything. And so, God, we kind of come here today like shadows, like empty places spread throughout this room, and I know more uh, watching online later. But you're the substance. And so, God, would you connect the substance in each one of us uh, to yourself and to each other? Uh, Would you be glorified in us, Lord God? And would you cause us to um, give you the glory, for it all belongs to you? Help us to see, Lord God, who it is that you are and who we are. We pray that you would help us to preach, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You dreaming? If you're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. Oh. week we uh, watched that clip, or all of that clip, and we noted that if in fact this right now is a dream, waking from this dream would be downright apocalyptic. To be or not to be, wrote William Shakespeare in in Hamlet, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, all there's the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come. Last week we saw that uh, Paul seems to think we're already dead and we're already sleeping and we're already dreaming, dreaming actually that we might not be. We entered the sermon last time with this, with this picture, two people holding hands and jumping from the World Trade Center on 9-11. The apocalypse is not that the planes would fly into those towers. Not that the towers would crumble to the ground. The apocalypse is that these two people would choose to hold hands. That is that as the world that we have constructed tumbles to the ground, faith, hope, and love would remain. That's the apocalypse at hand. The kingdom of God at at hand. Then I summed up the message by doing this. This is who you think you are. This is who I think I am. Me, 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 me. This is a metaphysical impossibility. This is a dream. And this is waking up. Uh, This is reality. This is putting on Christ, as Paul would say it. And so now let's pick up where we left off, all right? Uh, Chapter 13, verse 8, Paul writes, after saying pay your taxes and all that stuff, he writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you will not commit adultery, you will not murder... Um, You will not steal, and actually I think it just says for you will not commit adultery, you will not murder, you will not steal, you will not covet, and any other command are brought together under one head in the logos, the word. You will love your neighbor as yourself. The love does no evil to a neighbor, therefore the love is the fullness of the law. And this, knowing the time that the hour has come, it's now, for you to wake, to be raised from sleep, for salvation is near to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And Jesus is the light. And light is eternal. You know, uh, every photon is always now. Put on the armor of light, let us walk honestly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, its epithumias, its loss. Now, if you're like me, and I think you are, you immediately want to ask this question. Okay. What are the lusts of the flesh? Because I got some flesh. (laughs) And it's got some desires. Well, Paul just said, let us walk honestly, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. And so if you're like me, you say, okay, right, got it. But what exactly are those things? So I did some research, and this is what I found. The word translated orgies is kamas. So how many of you went to an orgy this week? If you did, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop that. One lexicon I read said that kamas meant excessive feasting. How many of you have committed excessive feasting? Yeah, Wednesday. Wednesday it did. This is weird, but in Deuteronomy, God commands excessive feasting. In the temple. Drunkenness is methane. That's where we get our word methamphetamine. Some of you take that for hay fever, but it clearly means intoxication. So, don't do that. But what is that? Two beers? Three beers? A cup of, cup of wine? You know, it seems awfully careless of Jesus to institute communion with alcohol. Don't you think? Sensuality. Oh no, we missed, we missed, uh, yeah, we missed uh, sexual immorality. That's important. Uh, that's the Greek word koite, which can mean coitus, but implies immorality or actually conception, but technically it just means bed. Coitus is the first commandment in the Bible. You wouldn't even be here if it weren't for coitus. Sensuality is aselgia. Also translated, wantness or licentiousness. And this one really stresses me out because I want stuff. And I'm a sensuous guy. I got five senses and I use them on a daily basis. (laughs) Quarreling is eris. That means debate. Didn't Paul do some debating? Jealousy is zealous. Most often translated zeal in the King James. Paul tells us that, uh, the Corinthians, that he has a divine zeal for them. John tells us that zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. So you see, that's all kind of confusing. And so we say, Pastor, I I need more knowledge of good and evil if I'm supposed to say no to the lusts of the flesh. When I was a youth pastor, all the parents were always on my back to get me to tell their horny teenagers about sexual immorality to teach them what that was as if they knew what 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 they meant was peter draw some lines and tell the kids when to say no the liberal youth pastors got together and drew um, the line here and said well after three months of dating it might be okay to touch your girlfriend anywhere outside that shaded area the conservative evangelical youth pastors Usually said, Nope, if you love Jesus, you have to draw the line here. And don't you even think about what's in the shaded area. That's called the lust of the flesh. Now think super, super, think hard about not thinking about the other side of that line. And then the super committed, like Jesus, hardcore youth pastor said, Nope, we draw the lines here. This is basically a burqa. And enforcing these lines is called Sharia law, and I'm not convinced that it will make you righteous, but it will make you lust for wrists and ankles so what so what are we saying that there should be no lines? that's what some people call antinomianism that basically means no laws, and these folks will also often form like communes and have a bunch of orgies, indulge in every form of sensuality and intoxication. And then if they don't die, they grow absolutely miserable and convert to fundamentalist Christianity or even better, Islam. And yet, if all you do is make laws in an effort to justify yourself, what are you doing? You're just taking more fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and damning yourself to outer darkness like that old Pharisee, the Rabbi Saul. And this is the problem of ethics. Where to draw the lines. And that's what the governing authorities want you to do on Tuesday. Join their team and agree to their lines. That's called legislation. Republicans draw them in one place, Democrats draw them in another place. Legislation and adjudication, that's how you judge whether or not someone has crossed the line. Legislation, adjudication, and execution, that's how you enforce judgments upon those um, that have crossed the line, what to do about it when, in fact, someone has crossed it. We tend to call that justice. And we define that as making people pay. And now we need to own up to this fact. The institutional church has been a powerful governing authority ever since about 325 A.D. And ever since Adam and Eve took fruit from the tree, folks have been crossing lines and then trying to pay. For about a 1,000 years, from 500 to 1,500 A.D., the institutional church seemed to say that if you cross the line, you had to pay with works or suffer the consequences. Around 1500 AD, some of the institutional church started saying, hey, it's not about works, it's faith. So you pay with faith. And then they began to explain faith as agreeing to a special offer defined as, quote, the penal substitutionary atonement, which means agreeing that Adam sinned, and so you sinned, And there's no possible way that you could ever pay for that sin, for no matter how much you suffered, it still wouldn't be enough suffering. But Jesus paid. So if you believe that Jesus paid, you don't have to pay, you don't have to suffer that suffering but if you don't believe you do have to pay but can never ever pay enough so you must suffer endlessly tormented by the end who is god who is also love but you really have to believe and you'll know if you really really believe by whether or not you sincerely love god which means you won't give any to the you know the lust of the flesh so we're back to our question what the hell is the lust of the flesh we need more knowledge of good and evil We need to legislate, adjudicate, and enforce justice. We need to cut ourselves off from the sinners and so save ourselves from God. So what's the lust of the flesh? My my flesh is kind of hungry. Am I allowed to eat food to feed my flesh? Okay, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, writes Paul, and make no provision, that means provide no food for the flesh, to gratify its desires. Next verse, remembering that chapter divisions were added in 1560 AD, 1,500 years after Paul wrote this, next verse, provide no food for the flesh, to gratify its desires, As for the one who is weak in faith, cut him off. Doesn't actually say that, right? As for the one who is weak in faith, which sounds like sin to me because faith is righteousness, right? As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Proslambano. Literally take him by the hand. Accept him. But not to quarrel. Diacrisis argued judgments over opinions. Dialogissimus. Reasonings. Not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. Well, the weak person eats only vegetables. And now this had to do with sacrificing to pagan deities and stuff. But he writes, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables, which was my roommate's old favorite verse, weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him, has accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So you see what Paul just did? It's just what he did at the end of Romans chapter one, if you remember that from last year. He talked about ethics. He listed all sorts of sins. And then he suddenly said, remember in Romans chapter two, verse one, you who judge are guilty of the very same things. For Paul, it seems that the thing that makes sin sinful is not crossing a line, but drawing a line in the first place. 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of an utterly revolutionary chapter, he writes this, The sting of death is sin. The power of sin, the thing that makes sin so sinful, the power of sin is the law. Now, this is an utterly remarkable statement from an old rabbi, like an old Pharisee, like Saul of Tarsus. And he's not rejecting the law, but he's seen something that utterly transforms the meaning of all law. He's not denying some sort of experience of rejection, some type of rejection, but under all the temporal rejection, he sees an eternal election. He sees the resurrected body of Christ and the glory of God shining in his face brighter than the sun. He's seeing the apocalypse, the judgment of God, the glory of God we were just asking, what does it mean to feed the flesh? And his answer doesn't have anything to do with what you eat or what you don't eat, but it has everything to do with judging people for what they do eat or don't eat. The lust of the flesh is to legislate, adjudicate, and execute justice, or your understanding of justice. The the lust of the flesh is to judge and not be judged but to go back to sleep. The lust of the flesh is to dream that you are your own creator, savior, and redeemer. It's to dream that you can justify yourself with your judgments. To the Colossians, Paul wrote this. Listen closely to this. Why do you submit to regulations, Colossians? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And now here in the book of Romans, he seems to be saying, not only are regulations of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, they actually are the indulgence of the flesh. The flesh desires to judge others and so protect itself from judgment. You know, the snake uh, tempted Eve, who is also Adam, to take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to make herself like God. And so Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one Why? She was tempted to take the fruit in order to feed her flesh and make herself like God. And so was that first Adam. And then they hid in darkness and lies from God and from each other. Then then suddenly they knew they were alone, and each one of them chose to remain alone. They were asleep. And now they began to dream a dream that would turn into a nightmare. We're all Eve, and so we crucify the Messiah, our husband, our helper. We take knowledge of the good, and so take the life that is the good, that is God in human flesh. In the words of Victor Hugo, we still dream what Adam dreamt. So I've wrestled with this question for years. Did we actually kill God? Because Paul writes, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. And yet the book of Hebrews claims that Jesus became our high priest by the power of, quote, an indestructible life. That word life is zoe in the Greek, and it's eternal. And yet the English word life is also used to translate the Greek word psyche, And that's not necessarily eternal. You can lose it. In fact, you will lose it, at least for a time. In the beginning, God made Adam by breathing his spirit, his life, his zoe, into a ball of adamah, a a ball of dust. And Adam became a living psyche, a, a soul. If death is the destruction of a psyche, or a psychicos body, as Paul puts it, well then... We did kill God in flesh. We killed Jesus. But if we think that death is the destruction of the life, then the idea that we kill God is just a dream that we dream in space and time. The cross reveals that we each dream what Adam dreamt. We dream that we killed God in order to be God, and we feel it as shame. And if there were no God, we couldn't even dream that God is dead. In other words, your existence separate from God is a metaphysical impossibility. (laughs) Like Paul said to the pagans in Athens, in God we live and move and have our being. And he was quoting one of their philosophers. In God, you dream that you are utterly alone. We dream that we took the life of God and we feel it as shame. But in reality, God gave us His own life and we know it because it knows us eternally as grace. We dream that we are utterly alone and that's hell. We wake to the eternal communion that is heaven. Anyway, right now, hold that thought. Right now, I just hope that you would see that the problem with the flesh is not that, well, it's not that you would enjoy sex. Heaven is described as a honeymoon in Scripture. The problem with the flesh is not that you would enjoy pizza. Heaven is described as endless Feasting and in in the scriptures, it's not that you enjoy pizza. It's that you only enjoy your own pizza Your flesh only feels its own hunger your flesh only feels its own Satisfaction the problem with flesh is not that it lusts But that it lusts to be alone Which means it lusts for death and it lusts for non-being And yet it cannot take its own life, or the life that's trapped alone in the flesh is eternal. And now I'd just like to point out that Jesus lusted. Luke chapter 22, verse 15. When the hour had come, when it was now, Jesus said this, literally. In lust I have lusted, or in desire I have Desired, the same word, desire and lust. I have earnestly desired, is how the ESV translates it, or I have earnestly lusted, epithumius, in lust I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. Then Jesus broke the bread, which is his body, poured the wine, which is his blood, and the breath, the spirit, the life, the Zoe, is in the blood. Our flesh lusts to be alone. And the Spirit of Jesus lusts for communion. Our flesh lusts for non being. That is, I am not. And the Spirit of Jesus lusts for the very being of God, the communion that is God. God is love, three persons, one substance in the dance called life. The lust of the flesh is to judge and not be judged and go back to sleep. The lust of the Spirit is to not judge. But be judged, and so wake from this nightmare and live our life, our eternal life, the life of love. So making wrongs right is most definitely not about not crossing lines, it's about waking to a new desire, not to just take, but to give, to give life even as you take life. A desire to lose your life and find it, a desire to print yourself a a sacrifice to God at the temple that is your neighbor. It's all about a new heart that bleeds a new desire, an eternal desire. Chapter 1 of Romans, Paul talked, you remember, about wrong and right. And then he revealed that we're all wrong, <laughs> all dead, all asleep. Then for 10 chapters, he revealed the one who is right. And now he reveals how we become right, and it's not ethics or you could say it's a new ethic, and you call it waking up. So let's just read our text again, okay, ready? Romans 13, eight, owe no one anything except love. Now that's quite a statement because he just said pay your taxes, do all that stuff, you know, and then he says, yet you don't owe anyone anything except love. Owe no one anything. Does that include God? Oh, no one, anything except love. Oh, God, nothing but love. What is love? first corinthians 13 paul tells us love bears all things believes all things hopes who does this love bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never ends first john john tells us that god is love so real love i mean you think that one through real love must be god love is not simply a thing then in space and time love is the foundation of all space and time Love is not a commodity that can be, you know, possessed like a a thing or consumed like a a hot dog. Love is the the one thing that possesses all things that's not really even a thing. You can't store love in a barn in order to use it it later. Love is I am that I am who is always now. (laughs) At the tree, we took the life of love, which is the life of God. And now the thing that we owe to God is God. So how could we possibly pay? If I imagine that I'm separate from God and just took the life of God, I could never ever pay God, God, (laughs) why? Well, because I just killed God and became my own God forever alone in the kingdom of I am not. But if I awake to the reality that I'm in God, that in Him I live and move and have my being, I move in God and have my very being in God, as Paul told the Athenians, if if I wake to the revelation that I could never be separate from God, if I I wake uh, then to the realization that I could never, I wake to this realization that I could never take from God what he hasn't always given to me and isn't giving me right now, I wake to the knowledge that everything is grace. And grace is the good. So I wake to the knowledge of the good, and I begin to live the life of love. I I pay what I owe, and I have no interest in evil. In other words, I bleed the blood. Even as I receive the blood, the life, who is Jesus? The life circulates through the whole body. You know, we sing that song. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And lo and behold, he is the thing I owe. And the very thing I pay. For he pays it in me and through me and even as me. He's love in me, bearing me, believing in me, hoping in and for me, enduring this nightmare that I uh, call me and yet giving me a new me and always with me. With me, faith, hope, and love in me is Christ in me having descended into my dreams to wake me from my nightmare. My nightmare in time is that I take what God has not given. And the reality of eternity is that God has always given anything I take. In particular, me. My life. Before he took his life on the tree in the garden, he gave his life as communion at dinner the night before. He always commands love, for he constantly gives loves, love. It, it, it's with the lust of his spirit. The spirit of love, the spirit of God. So wake up, sleepyhead, and pay what you owe. <laughs> That's my point. Imagine if one of my sons came to me and said this, Reverend Hyatt, there's a tractor trailer out in front of the house, and in it is 800 pounds of macaroni and cheese, 2,000 pepperoni pizzas, 47 cheese pizzas, and like two or three mushroom pizzas, 347 movie tickets, 947 diapers, 346 band-aids etc cetera, etc cetera, etc $80,000 accumulated rent $5,000 for gas and now we're even justice is satisfied and you can leave me alone oh that would be far far worse than paying nothing That would literally be the abomination of desolation having set itself up in the temple of my son's soul. And so what do I desire? Well, I earnestly desire. I I desire my own love returning to me as a word, riding the spirit, exhaled, exhaled from my son's lungs as he says, Dad, Abba, thanks. I love you absolutely everything else is chaff and hay and stubble oh no one anything except to love them your father is love he resides in you and in the temple that is your neighbor the life in you is the life of love in you he doesn't simply belong to you And the life in your neighbor is the life of love in your neighbor. He doesn't simply belong to them, but you both belong to him. You both belong to God. Until you believe it, you feed the flesh. That is a dream, that turns into a nightmare that some call hell. But when you believe, well then you believe that your flesh is his flesh, the very body of Christ. And when all are one and one is all, you well, you feel no pain and you experience it as pleasure, and that's heaven. That's God's dream. And God's dreams are no mere dream, that's reality. Verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you will, not, or the, for, yeah, yeah, you will not commit adultery, you will not murder, you will not steal, you will not covet, and any other command are brought together under one head uh, in, in the logos, the word, you will love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't write you should love your neighbor as yourself. You can check the Greek on all of this. Simple future he said, you will love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the command isn't a threat. It's a creative command. It's a prophecy, for it is a reality and eternity, which is where we are when we're awake. You will love your neighbor as yourself, or your neighbor is yourself, because Paul wrote in the last chapter, we, though many, are one body in Christ. The love does no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, the love is the fullness of the law. And this knowing the time that for us, the hour is now to wake up from sleep For salvation is near to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jesus is the light. Let us walk honestly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, its lusts. As for the one who is weak in faith, and now that would be a sinner, right, because faith is reckoned as righteousness because it is. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, accept him, but not to quarrel over opinions, that is, arguments over what's wrong and what's right. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him, accepted him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands, or falls and he will be upheld. Literally, he will be made to stand. He will be made to stand for the Lord is able. Some people say this is impossible. The Lord is able to make him stand. So back to the ethics. What is right and how do we do what's right and encourage other people to do what's right? Well, we don't judge our neighbor. Because they've already been judged. And just our knowledge of that fact is the judgment. In other words, we welcome them. Our neighbor will stand, for our neighbor will be made to stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we don't reject him. We accept him. And just that fact is judgment on his judgment that he is alone. And it's the dream that he is alone that feeds his flesh and feeds your flesh. So don't reject the sinner. Accept the sinner. And you'll be conquering the sin. Don't reject the dreamer. Accept the dreamer and you'll be rejecting the dream that the dreamer is dreaming that he is alone and it's out of our dreams, the dreams of a lonely heart that flows all manner of wickedness. You know, if you come to me depressed, I can judge you and tell you that's bad. Don't be depressed. Or I can be depressed with you. I can weep with the one who weeps, and before long, we'll stop weeping. You can come to me feeling sorry for yourself, and I can just tell you not to feel sorry for yourself, and you will feel sorrier for yourself. Or I can feel sorry for yourself with you, while you feel sorry for myself with me, and soon neither of us will be sorry. You can come to me feeling lonely, And I can tell you not to feel lonely, in which case you'll feel even more lonely, or I can feel lonely with you. And feeling lonely together will suddenly realize, hey, neither one of us is alone. You can come to me feeling rejected. You know, I think everyone came to Jesus feeling rejected, except those who thought they were accepted because they had rejected somebody else. But everyone that felt rejected was accepted. In other words, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and then they no longer wanted to be tax collectors and sinners. Like he says in the Gospel of John, I judge no one. But his judgment of not judging is the true judgment on all our judging. (laughs) That is the lust of our flesh. He said, I judge no one. And he said, I have much to judge. And that's because he is the judgment. He's the love of God in human flesh. I have a friend who felt rejected by God and went to an S&M club, a bondage deal, where, where Jesus miraculously revealed to her that she was not alone. He was with her. I have another friend who almost drank herself to death, and in the emergency room, Jesus revealed that she was not alone. He he was with her. Have another friend who felt so tired and alone. He went to this seedy old X-rated theater years ago in San Francisco, and sitting next to him, he saw Jesus with him, and then together they got up and left the theater. I've really struggled with feelings of rejection and so sex and drugs and depression and self-loathing are all very tempting places to hide but time and time again Jesus has shown me that he's rejected with me and you see rejected with him I could not be more accepted by God and eventually by every one of my neighbors. Even if I cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Christ in me. Feeling forsaken with me. Which is a revelation that I am not just me. And so I am so very, 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 very absolutely not alone. Jesus descends into every nightmare. He does it in you, and and he even does it through you. And... Uh, for you through your neighbor may 11 1935 bill wilson had been sober for six months but for years before that time he had been just a hopeless drunk Hopeless until he had an encounter with the Lord and learned to share his struggles with his neighbors. But on this night, May 11, 1935, at the Mayflower Hotel, Akron, Ohio, he stood alone in the lobby, just feeling absolutely dejected and dangerously, dangerously depressed. A business deal had just collapsed, and now he could hear the laughter, the clinkling of the ice and the glasses coming from the hotel bar. As he turned toward the bar, he thought to himself, I need a drink. And then suddenly he had another thought. It stopped him in his tracks. No, I don't need a drink. I need another alcoholic. So he found a phone, made some calls, found, found an alcoholic, an anonymous alcoholic named Bob, Dr. Bob, who didn't believe it would do any good, but agreed to meet for 15 minutes because he kept bugging him. They talked for five hours and then together they founded Alcoholics Anonymous. At an AA meeting, there are no professionals that judge people in and out, there are no professionals that judge people the success and the failure. Instead, alcoholics, rather anonymous alcoholics, they just welcome each other and then try to be honest. Each person stands up, says their name, and confesses their addiction. So I'd say, for instance, my name is Peter, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to alcohol. As you know, AA has been the most successful program, if you can even call it a program. Most successful program by far in freeing alcoholics from their addiction, alcohol addiction. At church, maybe we ought to all stand up and just say something like this, my name is Peter, and... I'm a sinner. What I mean is, I'm addicted to my ego. I think I'm God, and you're not. You know, if we were honest, I think we'd wake each other from our arrogant dreams and begin to dream what Jesus dreamt. We dream what the second Adam dreamt, and that's not hell, that's heaven our proud towers would crumble and we find ourselves holding hands. One of my favorite movies of all times was titled What Dreams May Come. In the movie, ironically, Robin William plays a man named Christy who dies and goes to heaven to discover that it's a land of shared dreaming. People dream reality together. What they dream is that we would all be But then he discovers that his wife isn't in heaven. She's in hell dreaming that she would not be. She's blaming herself for the death of one of her children. And so she had committed suicide in space and time, unable to pay, but still unable to pay, and yet trying trying so hard to pay, all alone in the darkness. Christy, or Christy, decides he'd rather be with her in hell than without her in heaven. He finds her alone in the darkness and just sits there with her. At one point, he says, people end up in hell because they can't forgive themselves. I know I can't, but I can forgive you. For killing my children, she finally responds. And my sweet husband. For being so wonderful, he says. So wonderful a guy would choose hell over heaven just to hang around you. And at that the lie is broken. And hell turns into heaven. You may feel like hell. You may be trapped in hell. You may have raised some hell, but at this table, you're welcome. For your helper took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and then he said, Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So you, you may feel like hell. According to David and the Psalm, you may be trapped in hell right now. You may have raised some hell. But Jesus. Descends into hell. (laughs) Just to be with you. And that's how hell becomes heaven. So pray with me. I have rejected you, Jesus. And that's sin. But you have accepted me, and that's grace. And so now, at the junction of eternity and time, I repent, I think about this whole thing differently. In Jesus' name, God is salvation, amen. So, pay what you owe, sleepyhead. And then let me ask you a question. What happens if you don't pay what you owe? What should be the punishment? That you never, ever, ever, ever pay what you owe? When you, what you owe is the one that would never leave you behind. Because if you don't pay what you owe, you're holding him captive in the darkness with you. Well, that's ridiculous. The punishment is that you will love as you have been loved. This is, this is how Paul puts it. This comes, this comes up next. This is your punishment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, and now he quotes Isaiah, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I'll cash in my old self get a new one. In fact, I've already got him, and he's growing. He's the one that was singing those songs a minute ago. I will build my life upon your love. It is a sure foundation. And then what's that next line? I will put my trust in you alone. alone. Now, who's singing? Because love trusts all things. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. So who am I? I can't make myself God. And yet, lo and behold, in some incredible way, God makes me himself. God was singing to God through me and through you. (laughs) Wow. How could you escape such a great salvation? You can't. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.